Well, it is always a pleasure to get to be here with you all. And Pastor Tom, thank you for the warm introduction and for allowing me back to serve. And the hospitality is always top-notch here. I share with my wife usually in the evenings or early morning little updates. And of course, having our eight-year-old son with me for the first time, I owe mom lots of updates to let her know how he's doing, and her response back was simply, countryside sounds so loving, and that is evident in the way that you are so hospitable, and so thank you for that. I know that I owe her a trip with me, and we'll leave the children home at some point, but for now, it's good to bring my boy here to enjoy the ministry you offer. My assignment in this session is to identify the right church. And that is the title of the session, Loving the Right Local Church. And if you will, turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians, perhaps a book that you may or may not have thought of in relation to this particular topic. But as I received my assignment, I wanted to think deeply and I had asked the Lord for help and thought about everywhere in the New Testament that might offer a text that we could anchor ourselves to when we think about the right local church and there, right there in the New Testament, the church at Thessalonica is a great example of faithfulness. They were not the perfect church, absolutely not, there is no perfect church. They were not a church without problems or challenges, but they were a faithful church and I want to meditate on the marks of their faithfulness. Let's begin reading in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and we'll go to chapter 2 verse 13. It shouldn't take us very long and, and then we'll walk through a portion of the text and see what the Lord would say to us in that. Paul begins by identifying himself as the author of the letter along with two co-laborers who had helped him in the ministry and certainly delivered letters and would visit the churches, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and the Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, is choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, 
that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing man, but God who examines our hearts." For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children." Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And here's verse 13 to finish. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. That is the Lord's word to us. Would you be willing to go to a word in prayer with me one more time? Father, as we meditate on your word and seek to learn from the church at Thessalonica, would you open our eyes to what you'd want us to see, open our ears to what you would want us to hear, Help me to be a faithful servant to my brothers and my sisters here now. If there is those in the room who don't understand what the right church is or they think they do but they're mistaken, would you teach them and correct them and encourage them with the truth? And if there are many in this room who already believe and certainly do understand what the right church is, would you take us from being hearers and make us doers, take us from being knowers to those who put into action what we know, convict us if we are one here who has begun to drift into complacency, if we are not fulfilling our calling as the church with zeal and with passion, but we have begun to grow lukewarm in our affection, would you stir us up to love your church? Help us here and now. We need you. We pray and ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. As a church planter, I get to meet many different people, and our our church has grown numerically by the kindness of the Lord, but numbers aren't really important. They're indicative of something, and they can tell a story. But my real question when I look at numbers or, or a growing church, as you probably do here, is to ask why it's growing and where are people coming from. And as I have conversations with people who attend our church 
there is two primary categories that we're seeing. One is new converts, and I praise God for that. I long for conversion growth. I want people to be saved, and baptism will certainly be indicative of that. As there are people being saved, there'll be people walking in obedience, entering the waters of baptism, and so our elders have all sorts of fun interviewing people and hearing the story of how Jesus has saved them, and I love the extraordinary stories in which someone was invited by someone, and they simply came. And they had really no context for church or truth or the gospel. They just had hit rock bottom. Somebody from our church invites them. They hear the gospel. And of course, as a preacher and one who, as you do here, would just preach the word as it is, cutting it straight. I'm always shocked, even though I know Jesus is going to save people, that people would come back for what they get. Hardline truth. No gimmicks. And they, they want more of it. And then I really know it's the Holy Spirit working in that heart. But there's another story, and this one is more troubling. While encouraging and exciting, it's troubling. And it's the people that come from other churches. And I'm not talking about transfer growth, like someone who may come from a church that's similar to ours. We have had some people come with the blessing of their own pastor to join the mission of God and church plant, and that's a blessing, and we need that. But I'm talking about the kind of people that come from a church that wasn't doing things biblically. And they were invited to visit from a friend, and they have their eyes kind of wide during the sermon. And I know they're either someone being converted, or there's someone who have never been in a church like this before. And all we're doing is opening up God's Word and saying, thus saith the Lord. And all we're doing is preaching the whole counsel of God. And two things happen. One, they're, they're sitting in shock. And then two, there's tears or frustration. I speaking to somebody recently and, and comforting and counseling along with our team. And another pastor was there and doing a wonderful job encouraging these people along as they aired out their frustration with 20 years wasted in a church and they went because the children's programming was very exciting and there's nothing wrong with having an exciting time in children's ministry and they stayed because the student ministry did a lot of fun retreats and they played you know glow in the dark capture the flag or whatever they're doing and hey there's nothing wrong with having fun students ought to have fun But that's really all they did and why it was attractive. And the church's strategy, and I know this because I spoke with the other pastor, he said, look, if you get the kids, you'll get the parents. And so we're just going to try to get the kids. We're going to try to have fun. And, you know, all preaching is the same. And, And I don't even know why you guys put so much emphasis on preaching. If you were smart and you wanted to grow your church, this is verbatim, then do things like what we're doing. You know, I spend most of my week golfing and connecting with influencers in our community. What do influencers do? They bring people to the church. And what he was suggesting is that I maybe just download someone else's sermon or just use a manuscript that somebody has already preached and and it seemed to have land and spend more time socializing and putting energy into programs and fun and influencer connections and that that would grow the church because music is really just music and the message is whatever. The point is that people come and have fun and so they've gone as far as just putting sports on the TVs in the lobby and their approach is if we get the men to at least come to church, we'll get the family and now we'll have people. And what is the ultimate reasoning for the pragmatist. When you say, 
you know, what are you doing? They say, but, but Costi, look at all the people. They're eating out of my hand. I mean, you guys don't have this. Look at, they're, they're coming at least. And I would argue from the text that the reason people come to church, choose a church, and stay at a church, and the strategy that leaders employ to quote-unquote grow the church matters greatly, not only now, but one day when the Lord's servants meet Him at His judgment seat. And this is something you should consider, both as an attender or if you are a church leader. There are right and wrong churches. There is a right way and a wrong way to do church. The doctrine or theological category of ecclesiology matters a great deal, and we should take it very seriously. The backdrop to our text here at Thessalonica finds a church planted by Paul in Acts 17, A real fun story if you like this sort of thing. There's persecution. There's a little bit of a riot as usual with Paul. And he's run out of town. And the believers are left there to pick up all the pieces. And so this isn't a a casual group. They're sort of a Navy SEAL bunch. They've been left on the island to fend for themselves. And so they've got backbone. They've got zeal. They also have leaders who have already set the example. Hey, this is normal. This is what we do. He did go into the synagogue, and he caused no small disturbance, but we see that there were also a large number of God-fearing Greeks who were reached. And so we're going to have a mixed bag of people with roots in Judaism, but also roots in idolatry and pagan culture. So on his second missionary journey that the church is established, and as usual, Paul has great concern for them. So What does he want to do? He wants Timothy to go check on them. Because as with all the other churches he planted, the threat of false teaching was real. The undermining of his ministry from those who were jealous, or Philippians 1 points to preaching with pretense. They wanted to upset Paul. Some people wanted attention. Others wanted to stray people away into their own doctrines. But There's also the reality of sin, and when we have a group of new converts, or when you have people together, there will be sin, and there's a temptation to fall back into the old pattern of life. This is why the book of Ephesians, the book that we're starting our church plant off with, and have spent a great deal of our first year in, is so adamant, and there's all these reminders, and you're putting off and you're putting on. You're putting off and you're putting on. Why? Because we need reminders as believers each and every day to put off the old and put on the new. And so he's greatly concerned. And it wasn't a perfect church. They have need of correction and protection, and yet still... To put it in a pithy way, they were heading the right direction. Timothy's visit went wonderfully. Unlike a church perhaps you're familiar with, Corinth, they had some issues. Paul's first letter was a scathing rebuke. Thankfully, they repent. And if you've ever wanted to look at a picture of true repentance, just read 2 Corinthians. And you could fast track right to chapter 7 and see a beautiful picture of what happens. Well, the Thessalonians didn't quite need that scathing rebuke. They got affirmation and encouragement. They were a commendable commendable church. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, it's described how proudly Paul speaks about them to all the churches. 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 4, he tells them, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue doing what we commanded. This is the right church. Not because they were perfect, but because of their priorities. And I want to highlight at least five characteristics of the Thessalonian church, beginning with they were a church that honored the primacy of the word, and we can put these in the present tense so you apply them to yourself even as we walk through the points. A church that honors the primacy of the word. The right church is a church that honors the primacy of the word. I want you to look at verse 13 in chapter 2. We'll start there, and if you think of concentric circles or ripples, we're working our way out to the other aspects of the letter, but zero in on verse 13 with me. Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the very word of God. And then he adds, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word accepted there means not just to casually view something or tolerate, but to welcome it. There's this eagerness of the Thessalonian church. Give us the book. Give us the word. What you're preaching, the message you're bringing, we believe that God is literally speaking to us as you preach. And I don't think the idea that they were just hearing from God, even, even does the context justice. So they were hearing from God, but you need to think for a moment of what the context was where they were. They were in a strategic city. As they heard this message and received it as the word of God, they have all of these other competing philosophies that are clawing for their attention and for their beliefs. And so they're not just hearing the word. They're hearing a word that is shattering their mindset, that is tearing down strongholds and thoughts and belief systems that would place themselves up with the knowledge of God. The philosophers of their day would have no doubt had lofty opinions. They were already exposed, these Christians and these Jews, to the rhetoric of the times and human wisdom. And what did they experience when the word invaded their lives? He says it performs its work in you who believe the word there performs, the Greek word energeo. You can kind of hear the word energy as I say that. And that's what it means to produce something, effective work in someone or something. And the author of Hebrews describes this and what's happening in the hearts of the Thessalonians as the word does its work when the author says in chapter 4 verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what God's word does, so why would we not give it as much time and attention and most certainly honor as we possibly could. The primacy of the word changes everything. A church has to understand but even further embrace 
excitedly that the Bible is going to cut to the core of who they are, that the ugliness of their sin when the word is preached is going to come out, but the beauty of grace and the cleansing work of the Spirit of God is also going to follow. It's going to be a beautiful experience as God does his work through the word. Therefore, if you want to love the right local church, love a church that holds the word in its proper place. And there are many who say they do. Of course, they have to. Because in the American church and in general evangelicalism, if you don't say that, you know, we love the Bible, we hold up the Bible, they'll just copy-paste even a countryside belief statement, and everyone will use words like authority and the Bible, and it's the Word of God. Watch what they do. Listen to how they preach. So many today will tell great stories. They'll make you laugh. They'll keep you busy. They'll give you practical steps. They'll share some how-tos. But if you don't leave, might I even say more often than not perhaps, with some aspect of that sermon making you feel that deep, troubling stirring of conviction in your heart that something has to change. You can't go live the same way tomorrow and the next day that you've got to walk in obedience to the Lord because of the gospel and because of his power, then you aren't hearing real preaching. You're not at the right church if the word of God isn't piercing your heart. And let's go further. Perhaps you're a very sanctified, older, wiser believer, and the word has done a great work in you, then you ought to still be leaving those sermons thinking, I need to do something now for someone else. I need to put this into practice, but we ought to be very careful ever thinking we've arrived because how many of you understand as we go through life, we realize there's really no there there. You're never there. You talk to older, wiser, more gray-haired Christians, and they'll often give you the bad news, which is also very helpful and humbling news, that the older you get, the more you realize just how sinful and wicked the human heart really is and how we need the Lord. And that's scary for a 38-year-old like me because I'm already tired of my sin, and I have now 40 more years of what <laughs> some of you tell me. But the Word, how, then we need the Word. And you want to be careful of a church that is all about you and preaches to you and the preaching is all about you and there's so much you because how many of you understand you are dangerous? More you, more me is a very dangerous thing. I don't need more me. I don't want more me. I need more of him. I want to change. And when this gets down to the brass tacks and the practicals of life, we need our marriages to grow more closely to the image of God. We need our children to see models of repentance and transformation. We need the church not to be a place where we simply played a game and the business grew and we had lots of money and lots of people, then we called it a day and the pastor retired and now he golfs in Boca Raton on his 403 beer, whatever they do. I don't have retirement yet, church planter, but you get the idea. There's there's so much more to it. Did people change? Did generations change? Did we watch as fathers and mothers and children and grandchildren change? And in the end, when you say, how did it happen? Why? What did you do? You could say like Martin Luther when he was asked about the Reformation and what it all transpired and how it happened. He said, the, the Word did it all. 
It's the primacy of the Word. God will use many avenues to draw people to the local church. You'll have people invite them. You'll have them drive by, and and it's okay if they see a beautiful building or a campus, and they say, that looks like a safe and inviting environment. I'd love to be there. This looks like a place of excellence. This would be a good place to have my family visit. But in the end, why do they stay? The old adage seems appropriate here, how you get them is how you keep them. They stay because the Word of God is what you and I want to hear. And so get in a church and love a church that honors the primacy of the Word. And I I need to add one more layer to this. If you do that first and you prioritize that, it takes care of just about everything. Who can be a pastor, him or her? Who can teach this? Who can do that? How do we structure ministry? What should we do about that? If you honor the primacy of the word, then everybody from the elder meetings to the deacon meetings to the prayer meetings to every other ministry are going to ask one question. What does God's word say about this? Then we obey it. And so it begins there. And I thank the Lord for the Thessalonian example that they received their message as though God we're speaking himself. Second, you need a church that gets the gospel right. I want you to look back into chapter 1 and, and just the first couple of verses when he's thanking the Lord for them. In verse 2 he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, and then constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Their work of faith, an interesting phrase that he would use. What he means is not that they did works to be saved, but that because they were saved, their faith had become evident. They were living their faith in action. You can understand that Paul got the gospel right. They understood the assignment. Repent and believe. And when you have been transformed by the sovereign work of God, what would come out of that transformed life and a heart that had been raised from death to life would now be good works. He also says labor of love and steadfastness of hope. I'll deal with those in the next two points. But first, work of faith. It's not cheap grace. It's a faith that costs you something, not to be saved, but because you're saved, and you could say it this way, while faith or grace, salvation is free, it's a gift, discipleship is costly. And the mark of true saving faith will be someone who is a pupil, a learner, the Methodist, the disciple, following after Jesus. And if you think that you're going to follow Jesus Christ, believe the gospel, and it's going to be this thing in which you raise a hand and you pray a prayer and you just go on with your life living how you want, then you must not have read yet or perhaps you have turned your ears off to what Jesus said to his own disciples Don't mistake this, don't forget this, don't miss this, the slave will be just like his master. Discipleship will cost you. The Thessalonian church understood that. Discipleship is action, they understood that. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite passages that reminds me that the old is gone and the new has come, I'm sure, if you know that passage for you as well. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Transformation is part of the real church. We change. So we might tell someone, you know, God loves you just the way you are. Or we might say more accurately, come to church however you are. But we want to understand this very clearly, and it impacts the way we quote-unquote do church, that while you invite the sinner to come as they are, or you might say, God loves you just the way you are. You're trying to invite them. Understand this. God loves us way too much to leave us the way we are. He changes us. So in the right church, you must see transformation. If you have, on one hand, a legalistic mindset in which you do all these good works and you put on the veneer and now you appear to be saved or you put on external religion, you don't have it. On the flip side, if you have an antinomian mentality meaning anti, the Greek word namas, law, this, this idea that, you know, I don't do any rules, any laws, anything at all that's by way of imperative command. Hey, slow down, church. A little legalism there, pastor. You need to stop telling me what to do. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And what you have is this license to sin. We don't have it there either. The gospel brings together God's grace and the transformative, the transformative work of the Spirit of God, and then also the call to obey. Because of the gospel and because He changes us, we obey. And so in the church that is the right church, we have the gospel fully and truly preached. In chapter 1, verse 9, you can see what happened to the Thessalonians. For they themselves report about us, Paul says, what kind of reception we had with you. And now you turn to God from idols to serve a true and living God. The gospel was preached to the Thessalonians. Nowadays, you will have many churches, this is not a caricature, many churches that will leave out the bad news. They'll preach, God loves you. They'll preach, God is for you. They'll preach, God has a purpose for you. They'll preach, He'll remember your sin no more. The problem is that all you get is people that think they're fine and they don't really have a moment in which the weight of their sin falls upon their shoulders. The good guilt, you know the moment where you know you're the problem, you're the sinner. You think of the Pharisee and the publican entering the temple to pray. What does the, the publican, the tax collector say? And why does Jesus say that's the picture of justification? Because he comes in and goes, Lord, he won't even look up. Forgive me, I, I, I'm the sinner. Meanwhile, the Pharisee, oh Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm me. Thank you for helping me to give like me and be righteous like me and I'm not like this one over here. I mean, the other guy, he can't even maybe get up off his knees. He's just laying. He doesn't even want to look because he knows the state of his soul. We need hard preaching because hard preaching produces soft hearts. You must be in a church expecting your pastor, the pulpit, to be clear on the bad news that you are a great great sinner, and then to be lined to the good news that Christ is a greater Savior. If you're not hearing that, 
And if you're not hearing it often, you're in the wrong church. You need the gospel every day. You don't graduate from the gospel. You need it. And I'm not one of those who uh, holds to a Christocentric hermeneutic in which in every text I, I see Christ. I, 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 I do, though, agree with Spurgeon in which he used to often say, I can go from a text and I can beeline to the cross. And here's what I would say by way of application, wherever you land on this, that after preaching or in your preaching, can you for a moment, by way of application or just way of pastoral love for souls, say, now, for some of you, none of what I said matters or it hasn't even hit your ears because you still have a hard heart. Would you repent and come to Christ today? Would you consider your sin? Would you consider that all the people around you are growing and changing because of one thing, they've surrendered their life to Christ? Would you follow Him today? Don't leave church without considering why this even exists. Come to Christ. We need to have a pleading for souls. And while we know God is sovereign and He elects people unto salvation and He is the one who owns and holds and has foreknown salvation, who does He work through? You and I as plan A in the church, Romans 10, reminds us from verse 14 all the way through 17. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they go unless they're sent? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so if your church is a gospel-less church and there's no call for sinners to repent, it's just this blanket of love and you go and be warm and be filled, we are heading in the same direction that the last 40 years has gotten us, this easy believism in the church. And there is a reason why right now there's revival supposedly exploding everywhere and why Gen Z is hungry for this, that, and the other. And here's the thing. A generation has watched the pragmatic, seeker-driven, attractional church play the game, and what have all the young people figured out? There's no power. Dad was the same way even still. He just went to church and watched the masters in the lobby. I went to youth group and had a great time, but I never heard the word preached, so my heart was never penetrated over my immorality or my sin. I dated the same way, married the same way, followed the same patterns. Nothing changed. Why? Because the true gospel wasn't preached. And so what are they doing now? They're looking for something because their way's not working. If the church would preach the gospel, then people would be transformed and a generation would not chase revival everywhere it supposedly is happening. They would sit down on Sunday morning and say, do it again, preacher. Give me what I need. The gospel is what they need. And this is what was preached to the Thessalonians. Turn from your idols. Sin is not some mere illness, as some would suggest. It is rebellion against a holy God. And when you repent of that rebellion, he'll take your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. You'll never be the same. We need the gospel. So get into a church and love a church that calls you out on your sin. Learn to love that experience, in our church we say it, it hurts so good. <laughs> and third, you will find that this results from all of that, a church that is loving. You have a church that honors the primacy of the word. You have a church that gets the gospel right. You have a church that is loving. He says in verse 2, and your, your labor of love 
and the, the word labor there that he uses, it describes a state of difficult and burdensome toil. It's agape love. It's the kind of love that we heard about in the first session from Pastor Tom. It is a Christ-like love. It's the love that seeks the good of the one being loved. It's not based on merits of the one being loved. It is uninfluenced. It is unconditional. It is sacrificial. It is unhindered. It is unstoppable. It is a love that comes from God and works through the church. And the Thessalonian church took the word so seriously and they believed that God had spoken to them so there was nothing left to do but do what God says. I want to take you on a, a short tour around the letter here. I want to show you what love looks like. Go to chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. You'll see where they learned this love from. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor do we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. You know, Paul and his companions modeled, just because you can doesn't mean you do. Even though they were in authority, they didn't dominate or lord it over anyone. What did they do? Look at it there in verse 7. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And then look at 8. I love this. Having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, so they told them the truth, but look at that next statement, but also our own lives. And then he gives another reason why, and it's the same reason why, because you become very dear to us. Look at the love that leaders and planters and pastors and shepherds and apostles have for the church. This is a beautiful example to us, isn't it? That we should be at a church that loves us and knows us and cares for our soul. It begins with leaders who set the example. Go to chapter 3, verse 6. And look over. This is in the middle of Timothy's report. If you want to spend some time later on reading, just read chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. It's all that Timothy said to Paul in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through the faith. Look at them going back and forth. They love them. They love in return. They think so highly of their leaders, of Paul and his companions. Look at verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Love for who? Love for one another and for all people, which is really what happens in the church, isn't it? The Lord stirs up a beautiful and righteous affection in us for each other. And then the unbeliever sees that. The one being drawn sees that and says, wow, truth and love? I want more of this. I'll take it. Look at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is what we ought to long to see in our churches. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Isn't that great? I don't need to tell you this one. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, 
Paul always pushing, brethren, to excel still more. Don't get complacent. Even though you're nailing it, keep going. That's what he's saying. This is what the church should be like. Preaching hard truth and in an environment that is rich with heartfelt love. In fact, that's what doctrine is supposed to do, isn't it? Knowledge grows and our affection then should grow in two ways. For God, as we grow to know Him, how can we do anything but love Him? And then for one another, the fellow believer. I was recently listening to a very faithful preacher on the subject of love, and this is basically an exact quote. He said, when you're looking for a real church, he called it, you're looking past the doctrine, past the theology, and to how much affection these people have for each other, and how much love do they demonstrate. Before you think I've gone off the rails that doctrine doesn't matter, this is John MacArthur I'm quoting, so everybody (laughs) calm down. brings it all together says because the goal of our instruction is love in other words you have doctrine you have teaching he said people will say I want a church that's doctrinally sound he says that's fine but you got to get beyond that the doctrine has to have a dramatic impact on the heart that's why the call to love is all over the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the model of Christ, no doubt, but then all over the epistles, in the New Testament commands for the church. I think of Ephesians chapter 5. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, reminding them that you're loved, and then children copy what their parents do, or in this case, a child copies what his father does, so as beloved children, and then he says, walk in love, and the therefore is tied back to verses 29 and 30 and 31, as Paul unpacks this beautiful command in the midst of all these sins that we're to put aside, to be kind, means to have a high esteem, high respect for those in the church. It should be tender-hearted, which is a Greek phrase that translates one of my favorite ones in the New Testament. Essentially, it means good bowels. What it is, is it's the feeling Jesus had when he had compassion on people when he ministered to them. It's a stirring in the, in the stomach. It's not the kind of Christian that looks at someone with snappy judgment and says, you know, I got a bad feeling about this guy. Or the kind of church that's always suspect of people because you're, you're in the holy huddle and no one else can join. And you look as, as sinners come and they're messy like you used to be, but you've forgotten about how you used to be. And you, you want them to kind of stay on the outskirts. No, tenderheartedness is the kind of ministry that Christ models for us. And yeah, if you're worried about getting burnt and backstabbed and betrayed, you will That's the call to love. You're going to be hurt. You don't run from that. Jesus didn't. Then he says, forgiving one another, which is not conditional at all. It's to forgive. That's the picture of love. And so in the right church, this will be flowing from the leadership I'm you say in a hierarchy sense, down, but maybe perhaps it's best for us to view it as serving from the bottom up as under shepherds. It, it should be flowing out like a fountain of love from leaders, from elders, and those who care for the church and model the love of Christ and then the people 
as well, loving one another. We must have a church that is loving. And isn't it such a healthy reminder for us to remember that you can't just have truth and you can't just have love. We have both. And Christ modeled that in perfect balance. And while we never will nail it exactly like he did, that is the standard. And as we strive by his grace, he'll work through us as we prioritize truth and love. And fourth, a church that is willing to suffer for the gospel. Look back at chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and you'll see the state of things within the church. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. We dealt with work of faith there, labor of love, and then steadfastness of hope. That's not a light statement. uses the Greek word hupomone, which means to remain under immense stress. There's a weight that they're under, and they are remaining with steadfast hope. They are suffering for the gospel, and we see that because we look down to verse 6, and you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, he says. This wasn't easy. The idea of persevering in the faith is here. The application for us is we cannot be churches that cave under cultural pressure. We don't do things whether it impacts our popularity or not. We do things because God's Word says so, because the gospel's worth it, and ultimately our burning affection for Christ causes us to simply want to follow Him regardless of the cost. And, and what drives this? The return of Christ. I don't have time to do it, but the hope of the future is, is where Paul goes with this letter. When you suffer, when you think about how to quote-unquote do church, when leaders consider their course of action, they should consider many angles. That is prudence, and it's one of the qualifications of an elder. However, when it comes time to make the decision, fear is not a factor. What will people think? Man-pleasing is not a factor. Money is not a factor. Nothing else matters except what Christ would have us do. Why? Because our hope is anchored to Him. He's not just the Lord who commands. He's the Lord who will return. I look forward to seeing Him. Don't you? Don't you long for his coming? What do you think he's coming back for? What do you think he's going to do? What we did in the church and how we led the church and how we lived our lives is going to matter. I often picture this, even it's just a sanctified imagination, so don't take this too far. But I imagine the Lord with my own wife, take for example, when, when we're at what I believe will be the Bema Seat Judgment and for believers and I'm there, I, I imagine that when he calls Christine forward, I don't just get to stand in the crowd, but I, I, I get put off on the side as he spins his daughter around and like Ephesians 5, he takes a good look at her and wonders, is she better off after having been with you, Costi, or worse? What'd you do with what I gave you? Now I want you to take that and apply it to how we operate as the church. 
Many husbands would talk a big game if their wife was under some threat. We would say, I'm not going to let anything happen to her no matter what happens to me. I'll protect my wife. I'll do anything for my wife. I'll lay my life down for my wife. I'll endure harm and injury for my wife. I'll work two jobs for my wife. We say much about that, and yet when it comes to suffering and it costing us in in first world America, no less. Well, the gospel's just, it's too much to suffer for. And you can apply that however the Holy Spirit would have you. For some of you, it's a generosity issue. It's giving. Money is your idol. You're attached to it. And you simply don't think that the church is worth it. And you worry about all these other things. And you're good at coming to church. And you're good at giving your opinions about the church. And you love to sing in church. And you even enjoy the word in church. But your money is yours. And suffering for you is going to realize that you, you filled your barns but you've not sacrificed for the gospel. But it goes beyond that. Some people are all too happy to, to use their, their money like a, a fullback. You know, the guy who gets beat up so the running back can go. And I'll give anything, but just don't ask me to do anything beyond that. And then there's leaders who can play the game. I'm convicted of this all the time. I thought I knew pastoral ministry and then church planting. It's like a whole different kind of course in life. And what I'm finding is you can actually preach really easy sermons and Christians will come. And then you could send them home. And as long as you don't cause trouble, you can make a good salary. You could have people keep coming to the church. And, and everybody's happy. And then you just, like the Jefferson Bible, you just cut out some of the hard parts and, and keep going. You know you can fill stadiums with that kind of ministry? And it will beckon you. All of that is an invitation to escape suffering for the gospel. So just lighten up in your counseling. Go a little easier in the pulpit. All of these are demonic temptations for even God's minister. If the enemy cannot steal your salvation, he will attempt to distract you in your faithfulness. We know this. This is spiritual warfare. The assault on the mind and the lures come. We must put all those things aside, whether you are a church member, a layman, whether you are an elder, a pastor who teaches. We all must be willing to look at our lives and say, Lord, what would you have me do to suffer for your gospel? The Thessalonian church receives the message and goes forward in following you in the midst of much tribulation. I'm in first world America. It is getting a little easier to suffer, but it's still really hard. I got a good life, got a lot of money, got a lot of things going for me. What can I do? Is there something you would have me do? Then you look at the word and you put it into action and it will involve simply one thing. It'll be sacrifice and the gospel is worth it, isn't it? Why do you want to end with everything intact? 
Why do you want to end having no battle scars? No legacy of sacrifice for the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we were saved. To live for the glory of God. So get in a church and love a church that reflects the Thessalonian experience where leaders are willing to suffer for the gospel and people will follow their example. A generous church, and what I mean by that is not simply money, but your life. A generous church is an unstoppable church because God is working through a people who have open hands. He gives the gifts to use. He gives the resources to steward, and you never close your hand on it. You simply keep giving, and his ecosystem drives that thing forward, and he builds his church. He will do it somewhere through someone. The question you and I have to ask when we look in the mirror is, am I a useful vessel for his glory? If you're willing to suffer for the gospel, in whatever way he will use you. Finally, a church that is evangelistic. I love verse 8. For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. The Thessalonians ruined Paul's ministry of evangelism because they took it over. The Thessalonians were loudly evangelistic church based on Paul's affirmation. And here's what Paul was used to. He would travel around to the churches and encourage them and talk to them and help establish them and then circle back around and encourage them. Well, he was going to churches and instead of getting two words out about something else, they would start talking about the Thessalonians. And Paul's great testimony Maybe in the middle of his, his sermon or his dialogue or his reasoning with a group of people, imagine him saying, now I want to talk to you about the Thessalonians and encourage you with their example. And they all go, oh, 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 like kids, you know, in Awana. Yeah, pick me. He goes, what is it? He goes, so we heard about them and their affection and their obedience and their suffering and their faithfulness and the way Jason went through this and the people were going crazy and there was a riot and Paul goes, well, you know that illustration then. Okay, let's talk about something else. And they go, no, no, we want to keep talking about it. Everybody was aware of what had happened in the Thessalonian church and here's what they did. They leveraged their strategic location. Thessalonica was a hub Along the Aegean there, they, they had business, they had access to people, the word could go out and they leveraged that to spread the gospel and they were very vocal. Where did they learn this from? From their leaders. Romans 1.16, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. What else would he preach? tells the church at Corinth, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And then instead of just preaching in a, in a comfortable position, he then goes out and does it, and he does it multiple times, and he keeps getting beat up for it and run out of town for it, and the people are seeing that, and it's the constant drumbeat of his ministry, and so the Thessalonians simply pick right up where Paul left them, and they are an evangelistic church. They live out the gospel, and we have to be reminded in their example that evangelism is not a program. It's a people. It's what we do everywhere. 
We constantly go out and we share the gospel. We preach the gospel, not only here in a building when the church gathers, but in our life, Monday through Saturday and beyond. The right church is an evangelistic church because it's an obedient church living out the Great Commission, taking very seriously the authority of Christ given. And I know we are a family gathering. I know who the church is for. So do you. The church is for the believer, if you will, meaning we don't build the service order and design things around, hey, what will attract unbelievers? What will make them like this church? We're focused on pleasing Christ, but understand, this still needs to be remembered. We're a family gathering, but we are a family gathering expecting guests. And you must remember why, because our Savior and the master architect of the church said in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have more sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them. And so if you're at the right church, you're at a church that is ready for a harvest. And I'm of the mind, perhaps you are too, that the world is growing darker and going to keep growing darker. That is what prophecy foretells, yes. But I'm also of the mind that... God is going to still preserve and save and build and strengthen a remnant. If anything, it's not a doom and gloom eschatology. It's a glorious eschatology in which as the world comes to a close in this sense and God's plan unfolds, it's going to be so easy to be a Christian. Why? Because all the Christians are going to be real Christians because you're actually going to die for being a Christian now. You're going to lose for this small window in history. When we're in glory, and maybe the Lord in some way, picture a glossary of terms, and in there there's this phrase, the American church, the purpose-driven church. You have all these terms, and, and most of church history is going, what is that? And you say, well, that's when we just sort of hung out and played games and had fun, and everybody said, where was that? Oh, I think of one other era when Constantine made it really great and cool to be a Christian. Oh, that ended well, and we needed Reformation some millennia later. It's going to grow darker, but it's going to grow better. Why? Because Jesus is going to save people. So you must have this mentality. And in the right church, there will be a celebration of evangelism. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite evangelistic preachers from church history, said, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in the world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here on earth. What did he mean? You're getting a foretaste when they come home, in a sense, here of when we're all going to be home there together. And isn't that the feeling during baptisms that you get when you hear the testimonies and remember where the Lord has brought you from? And doesn't it just make you yearn for more from the Lord? Begging him and pleading him, send them here, send them to me. I'll be faithful, I'll preach your gospel, I'll welcome them in. I know you're going to save, would you please use us? And how much do we measure success in the church on the wrong standards? Charisma, size, prestige, popularity programming, all of these mechanisms tend to mark the quote-unquote right church for people. What marks the right church is what the Bible shows us. I think of a quote to close from Paul Washer. He said, don't go to the church that's closest to your house. Go to the church that's closest to the Bible. 
may it be that the church you're in prioritizes these things. And as a reminder, just don't expect a perfect church. And if you find one, don't go. You'll ruin it. <laughs> but he's changing us, isn't he, from glory to glory. And he's saving people. And the playbook is real simple. So you just run the plays the way that the Lord is determined and he'll take care of the rest. Make sure you're in the right church and make sure you're inviting people to the right church and make sure you're helping them understand what is the right church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your clarity in the word. Thank you for the joyful struggle that this will always be in our society. And yet, as ones who believe and understand that this world is growing darker, we also are those who understand the lighthouse of your church will only grow brighter. So we say and we proclaim with joyful hearts, thank you for letting us live in a time like this. When simply preaching the whole counsel of your word, and simply talking about sin and preaching doctrine and loving people with the truth and evangelizing the lost and suffering well will be so loud that your lost sheep will hear it, see it, and you'll use it to draw them home. Make us useful, honorable vessels for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.